Lots of idle fingers snapped to my command A lovely pair of heels that kicked to beat the band Contemplating nature can be fascinating It's time for the Daily Review, a podcast dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. This is Paul Daly here with my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And today we're here to discuss the fourth episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This one is called The Disappointment of the Dion Quintuplets. Such a crazy, vague reference for, I would say, 99% of the population. Do you know anything about these Dion quintuplets that this is referring to? I guess in the context of the show, since they didn't really feel compelled to tell us anything about them, I figured it was just some sort of kitschy singing group, you know, like it a- sounds like it, doesn't it? Like a band or, you know, something yeah. like that. And wasn't there even, there was like a band of like triplets, do you remember? Remember on the Golden Girls? Remember they like brought out the, it was the like- guitars, The guitars, yeah. Yeah. And I swear to God, they were called like the Dion triplets or something like that. But anyway, maybe that was a, a hilarious play on this group. But this was such a strange but true story of these quintuplets that were born like in 1934. And this was one of the the first only like these miracle babies. And there's five of them. And it was so exciting. But it was so strange because the parents like had signed them up to be in the World's Fair as an exhibit. And so the actual province of Ontario took them over as the ward of the king, which I guess now would be like ward of the state. But then they proceeded to turn them into Canada's largest tourist attraction. And they did this weird business where they like grew up in these rooms where tourists and scientists were constantly involved in their lives and so they had this weird like glass walls with like this sort of like chicken mesh kind of like wiring where the children could see like shadows of the spectators but they couldn't exactly see people can you imagine how messed up these poor children were no mm. it's just so strange i mean basically by the end of the day what the what the punchline to this show is is that there was like a dion quintuplets fan club that was even started and they were basically used to market everything from like pancake syrup to toothpaste, war bonds, uh, palmolive. Uh, they were used for Quaker Oats and Madame Alexander dolls. I mean, it's some bizarre crap, you guys. I see something called the Dion Quintuplets Dolls and Costumes Cutout Book. Yeah. I mean, this is just so, so strange. But I mean, essentially, <laughs> they were such like this pop culture force that the concept that the Dion Quintuplets could be disappointed in you... <laughs> <laughs> seems kind of like in the neighborhood of like Santa Claus being disappointed in you or Funicello. Yeah, yeah, what would a musketeer <laughs> be upset with you? I don't even know. It's 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 really out there. This is one of the challenges of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is the time period and the pop culture references that they're trying to bring up with the audience. It's it's a stretch for even well-informed citizens of this world. It's a stretch for some of this stuff. I love so many of, of ASP's um, references throughout all of her shows, but some of these were, you know, I mean, it really hurts your brain. You're like, okay. And it, you miss it completely. You're just like, whatever, I'm moving on. I have no idea the significance. Or you misread it like I did as 
Uh, right, like a band or something. Right, the 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 or the fifties version of the Partridge Family or something. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, it's very strange. And again, I'm sure that if you spoke with somebody who who really understood the pop culture of the day, they could very much enlighten us as to how much this was affecting all these children and all these other people's idea of this like celebrity status of the Dion quintuplets. But now in 2018. This is a pretty rough sell as a, a point of interest for all of us. We basically looked at it like, what? I don't know. It's pretty weird. But let's get into this episode, generally speaking. We have this really awesome overlay of the flashbacks of them moving into their um, apartment and now Midge and the children moving out. What did you think about this? Pretty cool sort of like swapping back and forth. Really skillfully done. You know, like the same actors coming and going from the same shots, carrying in a piece of furniture, now leading movers out with the same piece of furniture, all set to um, happy days or here again. It's sort of like the, you know, this. Uh, Is it like ironic? Irony. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's because it, it's. Yeah. That's what I was going with. But then also, I mean. I don't know. It's so difficult for me to wrap my brain around like if Miriam was truly happy all of those years. I mean, it took seemingly a lot of effort to keep Joel, I don't know, in like a happy place. You know, all this business of having to put on your cold cream, do your hair in the night and then put on your lipstick and stuff like, is that something that makes you happy that you did that all those years? Or is it like I'm out from under that nonsense? I don't know. Well... I mean, Midge and Joel run into each other later on in this episode, and he <laughs> he's he, he's still whining about you know, let me come back up and and you know, and she's not having it still. So, um, it whatever those happy memories are, they they appear to have been the new memories of moving the shit out as a result of his shenanigans have overwritten the old ones. Yeah, and I mean, it was amazing footage to be able to see their lives together of all like the new year's eve parties and the birthdays and the bringing home the children and their game nights all of it felt so much like you got such a huge glimpse into those years of them living there you know that it just felt like i i know your story i know exactly what happened we recently moved from our home of 15 years which was the house that we brought our kids home to and had our halloween parties and had birthday parties and all that kind of stuff and so i did the same thing like when we we were leaving after the house was like clean up. I like walked room to room and videotaped it and was like, this was our house and this is where we did this and this is where the kids walked and all that stuff because man, it's just like steeped in memories. How weird is it? I mean, we don't live that far away from the old house so we can drive past it every once in a while, but Miriam still lives in the same building. Well, yeah. And I mean, and she's ignorant of the fact that her dad owns half the place now. Completely confusing. So do they still? I mean, like she's moving out, but like do Abe and I think I think occupancy depends on Joel capitulating to his dad in some way. Okay. You know what I mean? Well, and obviously Miriam said no about doing this. But it, I don't know. It was just it was interesting. I was wondering if they had gone through with the deal or not. If they if they did own it or or if once she said no, since that happened the same day that Abe agreed maybe no actual money had ever changed hands or what? Hmm. I, so I'm not sure. I don't know who owns it or if it stays empty or, or what the scene is. I'll, I'll be, I bet it comes into play in season two is my best guess. But 
I thought that the whole scene about moving in with Abe and Rose, oh man, we have had those times for for very different reasons, but we've had to move back home for different stints. And um, yeah, I felt like we could very much relate to that childhood room. Right. I, I, I mean, this is this episode is rich with Abe stuff. You know, they they pile up the boxes outside his office and Poor he's Abe. like, I can't open the door. And then like five <laughs> minutes later, they open, you know, they get the stuff out of the way. And they're like, well, didn't you want to come out? And he goes, I wanted the option of coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Abe's uh, character is so classic dad and so sharp and funny. The entire back and forth with Ethan about the TV and going through that whole like, I'm still in charge here. I'm in charge in this house. It's just like. I mean, you know, he's losing like big time. He's just going to end up having to sit in his study and and hope for the best. Well, he didn't know that Ethan was going to cheat. You know, he thought he thought it's been a long time, I think, since he has dadded, you know, uh, a small child, even though he has these grandchildren, you know, they come and go. He has help. He probably doesn't deal with them directly all that much. But now that they're in his face all the time, you can't help it. So Well, and I think it was a good indicator that like parenting has changed. I mean, when Abe was a dad and had his two kids, he probably said, get out. And they probably stood up and left. You know, it wouldn't have been TV, but it would have been something else. You know, if he wanted the radio, if he wanted the last bite of food, whatever, they would have they would have abdicated it to him. And now it's like, you know, it's another generation of it being like, "Mm, well, we kind of let the kids do their own thing. And Abe is like not on board. Still, it's good. <laughs> Screaming was yeah. awful. Oh, too much. I could not handle it. What did you think of all that footage of how they showed basically that Midge just reverted right back into, I mean, she looked like a teenager to me laying on the rug. It was like everybody did, you know, because the parents fell back into old, how long have you been out kind of patterns. And then, and then she's doing, yeah, the laying on the rug, listening to the Red Fox uh, record. And I'm like writing in like her journal and, and all that stuff. I mean, acting she like she has something like, to hide when her mom comes oh to the door. God, can you imagine? Well, you know, kind of. Olin had to move back home. I was a little bit older than high school age. And that, that even that, after a year of being out, felt like, you know, and she's much older and has kids and oh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, well, even more recently, like when we moved homes very recently, um, our home sold right away and we didn't find the new home yet. So we moved in with my parents and I mean, we didn't have nobody. We're old now and our children are old. So we didn't have anybody asking us where we're going to be kind of thing. But I mean, there was that sort of like take out the garbage kind of you're the kids and we're the adults kind of feeling that's like. Oh, wow. I didn't mean to get into this pattern again. You know, like right. we want to be helpful and all, but we don't want like a chore list on Saturday or anything. <laughs> right. But, you know, I, I guess it's just so easy to fall back into that stuff that, I mean, it was very relatable and I thought very well done. Well, you know? her room still was made up like the day she left when she was going to college. Oh, God. You know? and that whole scene with Abe describing Rose's bathroom situation. That was so funny. She comes, you know, Midge comes in late and they're both waiting on the couch in the dark. Classic TV parent style. Like, I don't know that parents actually do this, you know, with like the surprise. We're I all here. I had one time when I had a very strict curfew and I very knowingly broke it. And when I walked in 
the door. My dad was sitting on the steps of to go upstairs. <laughs> that was a very bad day for me. <laughs> and I and I knew what I was doing. Like I knew I was supposed to be home by whatever midnight or something. And I didn't call. And I very much knew that I was supposed to be home. And the way that I thought I was going to keep myself from getting in trouble is I had brought home a friend to sleep over. And so see, then it was like, certainly you can't yell at me in front of my friend. Guess what? <laughs> he instructed my friend to go upstairs and then, then the yelling started. I was like, ah, like, don't go upstairs. It's cool. Let's just all stay down here. Like, it was like, ah. Your but, friend, yeah. the human shield. Uh, basically. But uh, coming around the corner in the foyer to go upstairs to your bedroom and seeing your dad sitting on the steps is not a good feeling, people. And that's essentially what happened when Abe like flicked on the light. It was like, oh my God. And they went into just the old, you know, we've been waiting up for you. And then he starts laying down the law. But he has this whole thing that he says about how upset that Rose is, where he's like, your mother vomited. And, and she kind of gives him this like, no, I didn't. And he goes, well, your mother was in the bathroom for a very long time. And when she came out, she didn't look very happy. And it, was, it was hilarious. It so funny. <laughs> I love you that your mother vomited. I mean, I just, the whole, both parts of it, the fact that like the mother would be so fragile that she would just start throwing up out of worry. And then the part where he would need to like use this, like, listen to me, your mother vomited. And like Mitch is supposed to be like, vomited, oh, like freak out and like change all of her ways. It's like, I don't know, the whole thing just cracks me up. And then you have the counterpoint, which is the way that Rose works is not in your face it's behind the scenes right mm. so you know she doesn't say anything just that Abe needs to say that she had vomited and then rose has to be all like yes i'm very fragile right yeah so but then after the argument and midge is in her room then her mom comes back to the door and is like reassuring like they'll get the tv and you know things will be okay and good that, cop bad cop that kind of parenting stuff. right yeah. did your folks do that i think so i feel like mine did too but mine were reversed i feel like my dad tried to be the good cop more of the time and be like, your mom loves you. It just made her crazy today. And that's why she screamed at you. But it was like, I feel like there was more of that than the other way around. Like, here's the thing. Like my dad yelled at me. My mom was not coming to console me. That was like, she did like a chicken scratch. Like that's right. And your father's correct. Like she was like <laughs> punctuating the sentences. She was not ever going to She was come. like your dad's hype man. <laughs> yes. Yes. She was like, say it again, Larry, say it again. And like, uh, meanwhile, you know, she would scream at me and then I would see dad later and he'd be like, you know, all right, she'll cool out. Just be cool, you know, but yeah, definitely not the other way around. <laughs> yeah, no. Mom's thing was we're a united front. Little did she know. Dad was had a weak link in the front. <laughs> but mom was definitely not. She wasn't going to give me any TV behind anyone's backs. Good times. Yeah, so funny. Well, the reason why Midge was so late is because her and Susie decide to go out on this like investigative comedy hunt, if you will. If this episode had a theme, I think this ties into it where it's sort of like... It's not a strong theme in my mind, but it's like a it's like adjusting to your new life. You know, it's like doing whatever you have to do to change into your new reality, because okay. all, the, you know, we had the first episode, which was, oh, oh, there's a new reality, but nothing to deal with it. And then the second episode was kind of a little bit of fallout. And the last episode was everybody trying to feel like they had some control over it. But now now it's like reality stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so 
she goes with Susie on these fact-finding missions, you know, and she goes to different comedy clubs with different kind of quality acts just to see what's out there. It's, you know, and it makes a lot of sense. Before I I do a lot of research, I don't just go out and do it. Before I, we made a podcast, we, guess what? We listened to podcasts. Right. You know? And this was an interesting way to show it to us because it's not like they could just like get on YouTube and watch a bunch of comedy acts. They had to physically go to different bars and divey places and stuff and find out like, well, how do you even start an act and how do you write it and how do you like gauge audience response and then work from that. And it was, I thought it was cool. Like it was a cool insight. I would guess that this is real, that this is how not only back then, but I think even now how comedians hone their craft as you know, they go and find out what, how people do it. There was uh, a running joke about Jack Parr in this episode. Like okay. the dad didn't want this second television because he knew that Midge was going to watch Jack Parr on it. And he despised Jack Parr. <laughs> if that's a reference that went by you, he's a comedian who was one of the iconic Tonight Show hosts. Right. So prior to Johnny Carson. Prior to Johnny Carson. Right. So, and he only did it for five years. So he did, he must have really knocked people's socks off to get that iconic stature in a relatively short amount of time behind the desk. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Anyhow, at the very end of the episode, Jack Parr comes back as, as uh, she's watching him through the, alley right out the window in the in the neighbor's window but one of the acts is convinced that jack parr has sent midge to to steal his uh his act because <laughs> she's furiously writing down something and we know that she takes notes and i and, and watching this scene uh, a, a second time i think i was probably i think i believed that midge felt more offended that that there could be a comparison to the to Joel in terms of like stealing acts, you know, than just like stealing acts on its face. Cause she knows Joel steals acts. She even made fun of him again in this episode for stealing an act. And even though there's nothing that she says or does right. I know I like that tie-in. That makes good sense to me. I mean, I think obviously the the thing that that stands out to me from from woman eyes are more like the idea that he didn't assume that she was a comedian stealing an act. Oh, yeah. She thought he thought she was like essentially a shorthand girl, like a secretary there to steal the act. She and was so in offended part, in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that part, though. But again, it speaks to the era of like, he, of course, he wouldn't think it was a female comic. That was there to to poach anything from him because female comics were not yeah, you know any kind of threat. It to wasn't him. done right, and so I thought that that again just sort of gave us a little more insight to the to the time and the culture. I, I thought that you know it was interesting how much that Susie did know who the movers and the shakers were, like all around town, all the managers and everything. And then you know, of course, we got to see how entirely green. Susie was and that she like didn't remember to say her name or Miriam's name or or give any actual information when she was talking to the managers and stuff like that. Like that was all interesting. And, you know, again, told us where Susie was, gave us this like really clear glimpse into where we are in Susie's development. This was the episode where she spent a lot of time typing up each and every one of her business oh cards by hand herself with an rickety old typewriter i yeah it's so it's it's uh, it's amazing and like actually our son was like do we have a typewriter and i'm like no we really don't have a typewriter and it was like interesting to see like that it does not seem like antique 
you know, equipment to me at all. I mean, I wrote like middle school papers on a typewriter. Um, so it doesn't seem so old or anything to me. But at the same time, when you see it in that context, it's like, oh, it was like as if she was doing like Morris code or something. It was so old fashioned. Flicking her abacus beads. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there were a couple of comedy acts that do come up later in the in this series. The um, comedian with the suicidal dummy. That was pretty funny. And it was staged in this really great way because except for Midge and Susie, no one else felt comfortable laughing, even though, I mean, he was playing it so dead serious Mm -hmm. that people were taking him seriously as if he was more like a performance art or something like that. But they were in a comedy club. Why would you think that? He's trying to be funny. It's a joke. See, and I took it more like, you know, that it was such a complicated, abstract, absurd um, premise that he was trying to sell them that, you know, you and I will look back to TV of that time frame and say, like, God, the plots and the the deliveries and everything. So much of it was so simple, almost childlike, the way that adults would act. So then his performance was complicated and was sort of, you know, so much more layered than just going up there and being like, da, 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 you know, just, you know, if when I think of like Jimmy Durante and I think of, you know, so I mean, it's just, it's so just overt you know there's nothing complicated flapping arms and funny faces (laughs) funny faces yeah stuff like that and guess what you would get uproarious laughter but this idea that his ventriloquist dummy had committed suicide before the act and so therefore he needed to try to like muddle through the act without him i mean it, it was it was complicated compared to the you know just making a silly face so that's where i was getting it and that it was like that Susie and midge understood what he was trying to do and they yeah. appreciated his take on comedy while everyone else was sort of like just make a funny face you know or say something stereotypical i think they lost it when he goes and this is when he would say and then he says the punchline of the joke it's just <laughs> So then, this is when he would say, "Is you know who it reminded me a little bit? Remind me a little bit of like Stephen Wright, how he speaks so deadpan, super dry, very dry and stuff. It kind of and and some people have a hard time knowing when to laugh initially with him, you know, because he he wasn't saying it in this vaudevillian da 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 kind of way. It was like, am I supposed to laugh at this? And some of this is more like observational. Am I?" Um, is this a laugh time? I don't, I'm confused. So I think that the it it was a very fun little glimpse into all the different types of comedy and how people were being very protective of their material and not really knowing what to think of comedy at this point in time, especially a woman getting involved. Let's talk about women getting involved for just a second. There was that entire rally scene in Washington Park. That would be interesting to see how historically accurate that was. If that happened, if I'm sure something like that may have happened, but did it happen right then? Or did they kind of conveniently move it? Because there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening in the news right now in our time. You know what I mean? Absolutely. To kind of tie in, you know, the past with the president in a way to make it kind of meaningful. Of course, Midge gets shoved to the front of the of the uh, of the assemblage, right where the where she is noticed immediately by the woman running the thing. Yeah, and and just because you asked, I I did do a little bit of research on the Washington Park, Washington Square Park, I should say, and and yes, Jacobs was the woman. Um, her 
last name was Jacobs. She she was a what would be the right word? Civil rights type person. I can't. That's probably. But it's more people's rights. People's rights to the city is probably a better way to say it. And um, you know, and that she was a, a grassroots uh, activist, and she was there in that same way to fight for Washington Square Park and and to fight for this idea of having these um, these green spaces, and you know, not to allow them to build a road right through the middle to connect Fifth Avenue over to West Broadway. And so it's it, it was a real story, and and I think that for us within this context of this story for me, there was a couple of different parts that I thought that it played. I thought that for sure it showed Midge how out of the loop she was in terms of just like current day things that are affecting her life all around her. Like she was so busy with just like kids and her own world with Imogene and exercise class and, you know, those kinds of things that she just really wasn't aware in the same way that we all have Twitter and Facebook and stuff, things that are going around town. It's almost like impossible. This morning in our town, there was a gas leak uh, on one of the main roads. And I knew about it in like five minutes because, you know, my brother saw it. My neighbor saw it. Everybody text one another. Everybody got the information out to take the other route out of our town. So it was like one of those things where it's like, if you if I was just home alone here, though, I, I wouldn't know that something was going on like that if we didn't have the communication that we we do now. But then also, I thought that it was a really great way to show a woman leader who was saying, like, you can have a voice and you can say what you think and you can make a difference wherever, whichever area in your world you choose to, even if that's like in a professional way or if it's in this way of a people's rights. But come up here and like say your piece. And, you know, Midge got up there and she didn't really have anything to say about Washington Square Park per se, but she was more like, I am new to this. And now because of all of you, I feel like my eyes are open and I'm going to pay more attention. And really, that's what I kind of think we were getting from this entire episode was like her saying, my eyes are more open to where my place is in this world and that I can have an effect. I don't have anything to add. You said that very well. Do you know, though, the, this next portion of the episode, uh, you had strong feelings about, about this whole thing with figuring out that Joel had just basically set up the identical life with Penny, basically like across the street. Not exactly, but basically across the street. Everyone listening to this, I'm going to I'm going to uh, handshake deal with most of you that you've probably already binged it and you're just coming back to kind of just see what people have to say about it. If you're someone that is going show by show and podcast by podcast, then I'll try not to be too much of a jerk here. But I've seen the whole thing and it's got kind of a ooky ending for me with with Joel. But at this point, she is on the 100% most believable track that a human would take, right? I think so. That he has rejected her life and her kids and everything about her. And, and, it's, and it's not the life, which is kind of what he made it sound like it was. It's her. He rejected her. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. He just traded out women. That's the only part that he really traded out. That's the really gross, awful feeling is like, you know, he said, basically, it's like, not you, it's me. I don't want this whole life. And then basically, oh, my God, like down to like every single portion of their world was the same life. I mean, I was shocked that he basically chose to do that. The way that he dances through the the move in remembrances at the beginning where, you know, sometimes he's like the shit that he brings in is never furniture. It's like wine or something like that. Oh, you know, nice catch. it reminds me of uh, you remember Into the Woods, Prince Charming. He's like, 
I, I'm charming. <laughs> I, no one said I was loyal, right? Nice, yeah. Or something to that effect. And that's that's kind of Joel, right? Uh, he's a piece of shit. <laughs> I can't deal I, with him. I, you know, the, the part that also kind of... I, I wonder if season two will address this at all or if it's so one-sided through Miriam's eyes that it won't be worth addressing. But I feel like the way that the writers are treating Penny, she's a woman too, and they're basically painting her in this really one-note brush. Oh, yeah. And, no, almost no dialogue. And, and she's, she's just like a dithering Supposed to be dumb idiot. as a post, apparently. Yeah. Like, I mean, just how she's like, eh, eh, like just chasing the kids and stuff. Like, she just really... I mean, I hope that because I don't know, I don't know how to say this exactly right, but I feel like it kind of sets back the whole concept of like, let's empower women and let's feel like, you know, women are able and and smart and competent people in the world and then have characters within the story who are these idiotic women. I feel like it's not we're not doing ourselves any big fat favors to not at least show that, like, you know what? Some people are the second wives and some people are the secretary and it doesn't make them an idiot and it doesn't mean that they did anything wrong necessarily. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no reason to sort of, like, make fun of Penny in order to build up Miriam. I don't like that Well, as a necessary way of handling if, it. If the Paladinos have a well-documented, um, I don't know if it's weakness, but pattern... It is that they will make fun of somebody. I mean, as uncool as that is in these uh, these days, they will you're right. make I mean, fun of different types of people. No, you're 100% right. And, and, so, and that can be a difficult place for me with the Paladinos because they are very loose with that. The only thing that bugs me is, again, like if this is if the point of this is that she's the first woman comic and it's like there's she's trying to show repeatedly between the protest and, you know, even talking about the different ways that people gain control. Like she doesn't belittle Rose for the way that she handles it, but they just show that she does it in a different way, you know. And so it, it bothers me that with Penny in particular, I, I mean, I hope it I hope in season two they manage to give her some amount of a point of view only just because I just don't think it helps like your greater message to basically like you don't have to put down Penny in order to say that Joel is being a jerk. You know, from just the little tiny bit that we know about TV production and the idea of quote unquote servicing characters, you just can't have 100% three-dimensional characters in TV, especially in like eight episodes. I agree. And I think that it would be okay for Miriam to feel sorry for Penny, to feel like, boy, you're getting the wool pulled over your eyes with this guy. Let me just tell you because it just happened to me, like those kinds of things. But I feel like to actually write Penny as an idiot and continuously calling her an idiot feels like it's, it's just, it's pushing the blame off of Joel who is actually the jerk and making it at, into that Penny, her her idiotic ways are what is bothering Miriam. When it's not that, who cares? Penny has been around this whole time as his secretary. It's the fact that Joel chose her, you know, and is replacing her with an idiot. You I know? could foresee something next season where, you know, Penny Pan does not come back in all episodes, but in the episodes she does appear, here's my prediction. Okay. Midge will have a chance to help her, and she does. I hope she does. And I hope also that there's a moment where, you know, they kind of look at each other in the eyes. And Midge realizes, like, she's another woman in this world, too. And guess what? Five minutes ago, 
I was no better than Penny Pan in terms of like being aware of the world around me or not just sort of playing my part. But like now I'm, you know, I'm more woke and I'm out here in the world just because you're more woke. You shouldn't look back at the women who haven't figured anything out yet or are still living a stereotypical life and like mocking them. Like that's a pretty shitty way to grow as a character. Right. Like, and it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Joel is the dick for doing this stuff. It's the first time I noticed that they have alliterative like super high, superhero style names like they do. Midge Maisel, Penny Pan, like. That's funny, right? Yeah, you're completely right. They do. And, and Penny and Pan are both words, right? Hmm. I wonder if they're trying to like I don't objectify know. her. We, yeah, well, she's like, dumb as a brick, kind of thing. Something, something like well, and a penny is the cheapest form of money that, oh, we, that we have. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I don't know. I think they built a lot into her name. I think that they did too. Rather oh, than think, just sounding like a simpleton's name. <laughs> I think right? it, I think it sounds childish too. Like it sounds like this really silly. It sounds like a character out of a children's book, right? This is Penny Pan. Right. She's going to the market. You know, it sounds it sounds very silly. Again, I appreciate that from Miriam's point of view right this second, should she like the woman who Joel's with? Hell no. But I just I hope that as time goes on, there's a moment where she realizes that Penny is a human too and a woman too. And, you know, again, it just, it doesn't make sense to your greater cause to make fun of. And here's the thing, Mitch does it throughout. Like when she's up on stage and she's making jokes, do you remember there's like somebody um in a, on a date and she basically says that the woman is an idiot and that the guy is also an idiot. And basically she says something like you guys two are made for each other kind of thing because they're not laughing at her jokes and stuff. I mean, she's not above mocking people, but in that case, it's both of them. It's not, you know, it's not the circumstances exactly. Anyway, I, I hope that that gets sort of, like you said, her character gets serviced a little bit better. Joel, on the other hand, damn. Damn, Paul. Damn. Hate he, this guy. Oh, he's everything you want to just be like, you're disgusting. You know what? I have a question. How does he have money for a goddamn apartment, Paul? How does he have money for this lovely, lovely apartment? You know Penny isn't making any money. Is he Is he suddenly not paying for anything for his own kids and that old life over there? It doesn't and look like it. I mean, how, they how? had to move out. They didn't the have enough to stay there. Thing, I'm boggled. I am boggled by how this is happening. So yeah, I just he is just a deadbeat kind of guy. So we very much look forward to what you guys all have to say about this. Do you think Joel deserves a second chance? Do you guys think that Miriam needs to go off and explore the world more? Does Susie actually have her shit together? She going to be able to create a career path for Midge? And like, does this make sense? Is it like this is actually awesome because Miriam has her parents there to watch the kids at night. She can go have a career that is paying. And then at the same time, she can be a mom during the day or was like stuff at the Copa a little bit like to me, like, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't she have to travel? Wouldn't she have to like do the circuit and stuff? And like, is this really a goal that is feasible for her is this going to happen especially with like an infant and stuff how is this feasibility and and having your heart set on something i mean if you recall there's the scene where she she's looking at the stage uh from the from the kitchen door and she yes. imagines herself yes. on the stage mm -hmm. and they play it in like slow motion right. and with like the the vaseline on the lens yes. and it's like um that she saw that and she wants it for herself but is it is it feasible that's a different is thing. it remotely doable and like 
is ASP going to be able to manage to turn this on season two to where the idea of her being in this dress at the Copa, having this life, you know, it's sort of what Miriam already said in a previous episode where she said, like, I can't give the donate my children to the library like I'm going to this Dr. Spock book. Like, what what did I do? You know, like my life is already kind of set in a trajectory. I already have these children. I've already have this life. I, I can divorce this man, but what in the world am I supposed to do now? Is it actually feasible to be able to move forward with this plan? You know, and I don't know. Is it guys? Is it? I'm asking all you guys who are listening. Is this actually doable? Do we feel like we're even cheering for Miriam to have this completely separate life? Or like, does it require her to completely dump the life she had before, including her kids? Or can she balance it all? It'll take a village. I think it will. And she's very <laughs> lucky to have Abe and Rose so willing and able uh, to be there for her. And I think that that is a wonderful statement to, again, that time period where multi-generational families, my mom grew up in multi-generation, my dad grew up multi-generational with grandparents and stuff as a part of their everyday lives. And we do too. Our kids have that. We we didn't exactly have that. Our, our parents traveled to see their parents again, but they all moved away from where they were, were born. But we all came down here to Texas. So we're all here. My grandmother's here. My parents are here. We have an opportunity to interact every Sunday. We have dinner together. So we have that for our own kids. And I think that it's a it's an awesome support system that they're depicting. And I hope that she's able to extrapolate that support into actually, you know, having a life. It'll take a little wearing away the crust on Abe. Not Tony, Alex, out there in listener land, but Abe, Abe's a little crusty from his and he should be, years right? departed from fathering, you know, yeah. young children. And I mean, my goodness, he is a mathematics professor. I mean, just sort of by definition, it seems like he might be somebody who, you know, enjoys spending time in his study and really the academics of life over, you know, watching Howdy Doody and all that kind of stuff when he wants to read. And, you know, this just isn't isn't the thing, you know? So he's got set reading times, set reading uh <laughs> patterns and yeah, preferences. Exactly. So you guys, we are going to be on so many shows, SMS on air radio on Tuesday nights. And we will be on from seven to eight on Central Time and it'll be eight to nine. Eastern time. And we will be discussing things from our podcast this week. We will actually be talking about things like what are shows that we watch, but we don't podcast about. We would love to have you guys call in and talk to us about things that you're watching and maybe things you could turn us on to some new shows. We're excited. I know tonight on SMS, they are currently doing a show about Northbound, which was the is the prequel story to a movie coming out called North Star. Okay. And so I guess this is going to be a brand new way of handling things. I'm very intrigued with how they're handling it, like as a, this Sika. Yeah. Well, you know, in this age of peak TV, sort of, sort of hanging right there next to broadcast TV are these digital services. I think probably one of the more prominent ones is Rooster Teeth, which you have. Uh, run yes. into in Austin. I have. Well, I bet Sika is maybe something like that. 
Um, I love their little tagline. It's it's called Sika, and then it says Sika, and you will find it. <laughs> that is very daily review for me. <laughs> I enjoy a little joke like that. It's hysterical. But I, I think this is interesting, and this uh, podcast will come out after that radio show is live because it's running live right now. However, if you go over to so many shows.com, you can click on it and listen to the radio show anytime you like. And so you can catch up with our Tuesday nights and you can listen to it anytime. And as you get into a habit of it, hey, man, call in when we're having actual live shows and we want to hear what you have to think and, you know, what kind of questions you have for us. We love interacting with you guys. Yes, please. Right. Have a good week. Bye. (laughs) Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software. Our website, dailyreview.com. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. Facebook or Twitter or wherever you find us, please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pot people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.